Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery. And today we are visiting the topic that's really at the heart of this podcast, which is creating customers, creating products for customers that they want and even love, right? Doing a good job of making these products for customers to create value for them. And to do that, we are joined by one of the co-authors of the new book, The Heart of Innovation, a field guide for navigating to authentic demand. Our guest is Dr. Merrick First. He's a distinguished professor and also the director of the Center for Deliberate Innovation, that's CDI, at Georgia Tech. In 2011, he founded Flashpoint, a first of its kind deliberate innovation studio to develop formative leaders in exceptional technology startups, both at Flashpoint and at CDI. First works with hundreds of founders and innovators and is developing the discipline of deliberate innovation. He has also personally founded eight startups, so he certainly knows what he's talking about. He received his PhD in computer science from Cornell University. And as a reminder, we do create a written summary of everything we discuss, including a one-page action guide to help you put into action the concepts that we are going to share with you. And you can find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash 468. This podcast is made possible by the Rapid Product Mastery Experience. That's the RPM experience. This helps product VPs and leaders get their product managers and everyone else that's contributing product to increase performance, working in alignment to reach those North Star objectives. It works best for new teams or established teams that are facing a big challenge, meeting virtually for nine weeks, 75 minutes each week. Participants learn the seven essential product knowledge areas, and they build trust and rapport and collaboration in the process. It's unlike other training, it really is unique. To find out more, go to productmasterynow.com RPM and see how it can help you. Merrick, thank you so much for joining us. Chad, it's great to meet you. It's nice to be here. I guess that's a virtual concept, but it is nice to be here. You have to be somewhere. This is a great place to be. And it's very much like we're just sitting over coffee. We've already had a, a good chat over some of the things. I have my coffee, actually, even though it's late in the evening. I'm fascinated by this book, and I haven't read it in any detail at all. I just skimmed the topics, and I do that because I like to be have the information fresh as we talk about it. But the thing that stood out that I first saw was just the group of authors that brought this book to being, right? Uh, that caught my attention. There's four innovation experts here on the author team from the startup world, large enterprises, nonprofits, and academia. academia. How did that impact what the book addresses? By the way, it's not, you're not the only person who noticed that when we were searching for publishers. It's, that was a sticking point for some publishers. Mm. They, the worry was, can four people actually come up, figure out how to make a book happen? The, here's the genesis of it. The work that's in the book, the, many of the ideas in the book came from work that I did with my, on my own, but also with my business partner, whose name is Matt Chanoff. We've been partners and doing many different kind of startup things, and investing kind of things for about 25 years. Mm-hmm. We ran this, I created and ran this program called uh, Flashpoint at Georgia Tech. And we learned some, I would say, pretty counterintuitive, but super useful and uh, in the end, quite valuable, I, pretty sure, things. And we learned this thing we worked on was in the context of doing startups, which is pure startups. And it turns out in that context, it was very unencumbered by, let's say, being part of a large corporation. You look at a couple of people, a single person, they have some idea they want to make something, and they're actually not of value. That's what we came to realize, that the difficulty for a startup is how do you become of value? And in that context, trying to find out why it is people are not usually successful with that, it became apparent that the ideas, the things we learned, the kind of tools and processes that we had to develop were actually applicable way beyond 
just startups. They applied to any time someone was trying to do an innovation. And for me, I'll just say one of the things that was hard to figure out is what's the difference between invention and innovation. And I'll tell you what, what I've come to, we've come to. A successful innovation means some people set out to do something and it actually continues even beyond them. So it doesn't stop when they get bored and it doesn't stop when the money runs out. It actually becomes part of the world. Now, in that context, when Matt and I were thinking to write a book about this, we were thinking, like, who's the audience for this? And we realized two things. One, and this is a weird thing, when people came back and told us how much of an effect this kind of material and this way of thinking had on them, they said it affected their whole lives. It just made a difference in their lives. It wasn't just that they were able to raise money, not, it wasn't just they would have got customers huh. and be successful in business. It was to change their relationship with their spouse and their kids. So that was a bigger audience. But even different than that is the audience that exists with people who are doing actual innovation inside of corporations, small enterprises, large enterprises. And so I went to some friends that I had known for many years who had done innovation at IBM. One was Danny Saba, who was the, he ran all of software for IBM for many years. He had, he built like an $8 billion business inside of IBM and ran it. And Mark Wegman, who is a IBM fellow and a member of the National Academy of Engineering. And I said, let me tell you about some of the stuff we're figuring out. And it really resonated with them. And I said, why don't we write a book together? Because the stories in here can be of three different types. They can be around startups, but they can be around large and medium enterprise innovation projects, and also about how individuals can innovate even in their own lives. And that's how we came together. Now, the hard part was, how do you get four people that have very strong opinions and have different stories? And how do you actually get a book out of that that has, uh, uh, it's easy to read, it's a quick read, it has the right stories? That was a more of a puzzle for us. And maybe that's really the question you were asking. My observations, you and your authors may have a different opinion, but my, my observations is we expect startups to be good at innovating. And they generally, in some sense, are. They may not be good at the mechanics, but they're trying to innovate because they're creating something new, adding new value to the world in some sense. As organizations tend to scale and get larger, they, f they forget that, um, that they, they lose that ability. And that's what particularly caught my attention was you're approaching it from a startup perspective and bringing the tools into large organizations. And others have tried that, but we haven't been real successful yet, right? Yeah. So, well, here is the puzzle. And by the way, I, I was wondering whether or not part of the reason you caught your eye that there were four authors, besides the fact that it's unusual to have four authors, is as a product person, you know how hard it is to product manage a team to get them all working on something that's common. And so here in the book, there's a product and this team was a team of four people. And I, and I, I thought I might just mention that the answer to that was we had very intense conversations. And mm -hmm. the way that you I've learned from some others about how to have intense conversations is you make sure that you start by talking about what's the purpose. Let's remind ourselves what's right. the purpose of this conversation. Then you discuss the facts, which you can all agree on. And then you can have a conversation about how each of you is seeing the facts. And that's, that got us pretty far. My, my partner, Matt, is very good at this. And he actually, at one point, said that he thought our greatest accomplishment with the book was that we didn't kill each other in doing this. But going back to your question about what we're bringing to to, to visibility, you say startups are good at innovating, and I'm thinking startups are almost always failing. So the success rate of startups is intensely terrible. Intensely mm. is a bad word, but they're just really terrible. Startups that are funded by venture firms, they have a one in 10 chance of being successful. Mm -hmm. So there's really something seriously broken. And the thing that's most 
likely broken is they build things. They innovate in the sense of they come up with an invention or they make something. The thing that kills most businesses is the thing that people really can't live without in order to be successful, which is if your customers are indifferent, you don't really have a, you can't be successful. And if you build something and people can say, I could buy it or I could not buy it, that's what indifference feels like. That's what you can't live with. And what's so interesting is how difficult it is to manage that kind of problem of trying to figure out what creates indifference or even better, how do you do something which people can't be indifferent to? That's the heart of the problem. And that's a problem that you can see in its purest way in the startup because they have no income. They have no, no company around them. They have no other products around. They have to find a way to get to that from scratch. In large companies, the problem of innovation is you try to make something and it might be, I'm going to adjust a current product or I'm going to try to go into a new kind of a product or I'm going to try to transform some product. And almost always what you're met with is indifference. And so I don't remember exactly what your original question was. I'm sorry, but but the, the point is that what's really important is to ask yourself this question, how is it that my customers are able to be indifferent? Mm-hmm. And then how can I be, how can I create something in such a way that they are non-indifferent. And if you can get to non-indifference, then you at least have a chance. Yeah. yeah. And just to clarify, I'm thinking of startups who have became successful organizations. And as they grow, like all organizations started small at some point, right? Oh, right? As they grow, they tend to be less innovative over time in general. Actually, let me say something about that. Because I think yeah, what you're getting at, which is what you often see in these large companies, is at some point in order to be successful, some part of the organization figures out something that the customers are not indifferent to. Mm-hmm. And then but, they build product that meets and, and that sorry, not Mar- indifference. Mar- just to be clear, when you say indifferent, I'm thinking in my, my mind that we've created something that matters to them, right? That's something that creates value for customers, something that customers care about. I'll give you a kind of, it's really easy to see the ex- examples in super successful companies like Coca-Cola. Okay. Not drinking a certain amount of liquid every day is just not okay. That's, and that's a non-indifference. Now, it's a hard thing for a startup to go after that kind of market. But if you've already been in that market, Coke's problem is simply how do you make sure that you maintain that share of liquid that's being bought every day? That's what I mean by a non-indifference. In fact, technically, it's just for, the book is all about saying this in a way that's really clear and effective. What we've tried to get at is what is demand actually? Not like what are what is it you think demand is? It's not... And demand goes like this. People find themselves in situations, your customers find themselves in situations in which not buying is not okay. Hmm. That's what demand looks like. That's non-indifference. If, if they're finding themselves in a situation in, not, in which not buying is okay, they might buy, but if not buying is okay, they have alternatives to buying and they're just okay, then they can be indifferent to your product. And that's what kills businesses. Now, what happens at the beginning, of in the center of every successful business, it has to be the case that there's some not, that there's some non-indifference, that there's some authentic demand. When companies get big and they start figuring out how to execute against that, they forget what it was that was causing the customers to be non-indifferent. And they, they start to look at other things. And in fact, in the book, we, we give an example of something that IBM found themselves doing. They were in the disk drive business, and they found at the time, this is early in the, in the time, that what people were not indifferent to was how dense the, the, the head the, the disk drives were, like how much data you could get onto a single disk drive. Hmm. 
And they made more and more money because they could get their engineers to get the density, what was called the aerial density of these disks, to be greater and greater. They had someone who won a Nobel Prize in something called giant magnetic resonance that was going to enable them to be the absolute dominant leader in being able to get greater and greater aerial density on these disk drives. They they invested heavily in that, and it turned out that the market just collapsed before them because what EMC figured out was you can get to the kind of reliability that they were looking to get in a different way. You could get really cheap disk drives, and you could put them into these RAID, these multiplied uh, things, and you could just have software which managed that, and yeah, then EMC ate their lunch. So what was interesting about that is the not, not having greater aerial density was actually related to not having reliability. And there was another way to get at reliability. When the market changed, the company had forgotten what they were about. The company had thought that what they were about was getting greater aerial density, yeah. not about creating greater reliability and cheaper disk drives. And they got their lunch eaten. So that's one way that things fail because people don't remember what the original knot was, what the original authentic demand was. But more than that, you start to hire people who aren't interested in that. You hire people who are really good at managing and really good at executing. And those people have no interest or no need to go back and think about what's the customer's authentic demand. Right. So companies do become moribund or stuck in this way. They know they have to innovate, but understanding what innovation is lost. And probably, by the way, at the very beginning, it was just an accident when they found the original authentic demand. I like where we ended up with the not and the uh, IBM example, I think is very clear about the project progressing and we get focused and in, more internally on our solution over time right we're, we're going to make this new discovery yes and we lose track a little bit of where the customer preference and market might have might be changing right and missing out on competitors actions yes that's right and by the way preference we've learned one of the things is preference is not reliable so preferences change they're too labile uh -huh. and so to understand what creates authentic demands that are stable you have to look beyond preference that's okay. one of the things we've learned. That's one of the things we talk about in the book is how to map situations to be able to figure out where the authentic demands are that are stable that you can build products against. Okay. I want to get to a, a few of your insights in the framework for this deliberate innovation, right, that's talked about in the book mm -hmm. and help listeners at least have a few landmarks and milestones to think about what's involved in this deliberate innovation approach. And I don't know where you want to start, but let's tease that out a little bit. I'll tell you a couple of stories. Here's a story. I have a friend named Jim Balcom. Uh, let me start with the story of, of accidental innovation. We, dis we distinguish accidental innovation from deliberate innovation. So okay. Jim Balcom, very successful guy. At the time, he'd just come back from Vietnam. He went to Harvard Business School, had a young wife, found himself really interested in doing startups. There was a guy named Yank Ding who was uh, living on a lake in Eufaula, Alabama, who had this great idea. He said, at the time, these fishing fleets had figured out you could put sonar in the back of the boat and you could find fish using sonar. But no one had actually built anything like that for the re recreational fishing market. And this guy living on a lake said, what if I took a Heathcote sonar thing, make it so it's waterproof, throw it out the back of the boat? And he built this thing called the Humminbird Fish Finder. My, and he, he got the business to about a million dollars in sales, found my friend Jim, who had just graduated from Harvard Business School, who wanted to do a startup. Jim moved his young family down to Eufaula, Alabama, and spent a year doing everything they teach you at Harvard Business School. They used focus groups and marketing methods, and they got it up to about $6 million a year in sales. At which point, for, unfortunately, Yang Ding, his partner, died. And Jim Balcom finds himself having to run this company 
And then he tells this terribly painful story about how he had nine new product introductions and nine new product failures. Now, each of those product introductions, your audience, I know, knows a lot about product management. This is a super expensive thing to do. They prioritized the 10 most important things. They picked the top three. They did focus groups. They did market research. They had to go engineer the thing. They had to change the inventory out. They tried everything, and nothing changed the, the sales it was flat at six million a year, and they thought that the entire market was about fifty three million dollars total addressable market, and they could they could not budge from six. They're about to go out of business, and here's the accidental thing that happens: the woman who's working for them, named Sue Simons, finds herself in a bass fishing shop, and she sees a woman down the aisle, about to reach for a hummingbird fish finder. And she says, would you mind telling me why you're reaching for a hummingbird fish finder? And here's a story this woman tells her. She says, this weekend, my husband's going to make me go out on the boat with him again. And he and his buddy are going to be in the back of the boat. They're going to be getting drunk. And between me and my friend, we're going to have four kids and they're going to drive us crazy on the boat. I thought if I bought a hummingbird fish finder, my kids would have something to play with on the boat. Now, in that moment where you're desperate because you're failing, Jim hits himself in the head and says, oh, shit, maybe I was not in the fish finding business. Maybe I'm in like the entertainment on, on recreational boat business. He goes back to his team. Now, as a product manager, can you imagine what this is like? He goes back to his team and says, okay, you've been asking people how to make it a better fish finder. They've been telling you you need a better squelch knob. They wanted to know what the bottom is. They wanted to know big fish, little fish. He said, forget all that. Make it a, as big as a TV screen. Make it visible in daylight. Make it multicolored. They did that. They engineered the hell out of it. And first year sales. Now, remember, it was started at a million. They got it to six. They couldn't get it to budge off the six. They thought the total market was $53 million. First year sales, $75 million. Second year sales, $125 million. And I'll say, here's how you can think about it. And by the way, what Jim would say to you now is like the name of his company was the Humminbird Fish Finder Company. The product was called the Humminbird Fish Finder. The thing found fish. How was he supposed to figure out that he wasn't in the fish finding business? And let me show you how the not principle applies. Is it okay to not find fish? And the answer is if it's not okay to not find, if it's not okay to not find fish, you're not getting drunk in the back of your boat. And for commercial fishing fleets, not finding fish is not okay. Right. But for re recreational people, but is it not okay to have a good time, bad time? You know, is it okay to have a bad time on your boat? No, it's recreational. It's a much bigger market. So that's a difference between accidental and intentional, or accidental and deliberate. So you asked me a question of what is, what's deliberate. Now I want to tell you deliberate innovation is how do you go about doing that deliberately, intentionally, as opposed to just having to rely on the risk on the accidental part. Let me pause and hear your thoughts. Yeah, the, the path they went down, those nine new introductions and the nine failures, yeah. not moving their market share, any or sales, any, that, that's a very predictable action to take. The failure isn't predictable, right? It's let's do the customer research, understand how our customers are using the product, what their unmet needs are now with that. Exactly. How do we make you it better them. for them? And exactly. then to realize we're in the wrong business to start with, that, that there's a bigger opportunity, that's very insightful. Right. And what's so interesting, I think, is we have so many tools that can help us like do iterations and mm -hmm. do uh, market research and do an analysis and do all those tools we have make sense if there's authentic demand. Right. They help you figure out what the thing should be if there's demand, but they don't tell you what demand is. And that's what one of the things that's what we found out in, in, in our work is that you can actually do something that finds out what demand is. And then 
when you actually do the kind of normal um, things that product managers do to iterate towards a, a solution, the customers will actually reach for it, and it's not so accidental. So that's one of the things that we've really learned. It's become that's for me. It's a game changer to have an insight into why that's so hard to see. So you can ask yourself the question: Why was it so hard to see? And part of it is, as I say, he was walking around in a waking dream. The waking dream was this was about finding fish. Right. That that's the business we're in. That's what everybody thought the business was in. IBM thought the business was about greater aerial density on their disks. So yep. the puzzle, and this is the thing that we learned doing startups, was and this was eventually it hits you in the middle of the forehead. And I, we, you said we started eight. I've actually started close to 100 companies now. The thing that you learn when you're working with founders is they're walking around with this fantasy in their head. They have this waking dream about what it is the customers want or need. And then it turns out they make things that the customers want or need, but the customers don't buy. So here's an interesting thing. Everybody says, go find things that go find out what the customers want and make that. It turns out that can't possibly work. It's sort of obvious that it can't work, but it's not obvious that it can't work. And I'll show you why. Just think about something you want that you don't buy. Now think about something else you want you don't buy. There's so many more things you want that you don't buy than there are things you buy. Sure. And you can say, okay, we'll make it like you really want it. Okay, that doesn't work either. If you could make it as things that you need, and then it doesn't work. Because just think of all the things you need to do that you never do. So the solution isn't to try to figure out wants or needs. That's a waking dream thing. The solution is to say, what is it not okay to not have? That's the question. You have to think about the people are in a situation, and if there's an alternative that's okay, then it's not a not-not. The trick is to find yourself thinking about situations and removing the alternatives. When you do that, what you're left with is a not-not, and the not-nots are authentic demands you can then build product to. Now, once you realize that, you can ask, how could I deliberately go about trying to identify the not-nots? That's the deliberate innovation part we That's need to get to, That's the deliberate innovation right? part, yes. Yep. That's the deliberate innovation part. Okay. So take us, maybe an example is helpful for this, but I'm sure listeners are very much here. How do you actually find out what is the demand? How do you create the demand? Choose the right thing to solve to create that demand. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. So the first thing to realize is it has nothing really to do with product. In fact, one of the things that's so hard about explaining this to people, which is thank you for the opportunity to chat about it and then read the book for, or in the, you don't have to read the book, but the reason we put it down in, the, in writing is because some of this stuff goes by and it's so counterintuitive that it's hard to remember what it is was said. It's not the natural thing. So having stories in the book was our intention to make it possible for people to remember these things. The, the first thing to notice is, you. so I want to tell it to you backwards. I want to tell you like things that don't work and okay. why they don't work, because then you can go figure out, then what should I do that works? That's how we came to it. The first thing is, Showing people product and seeing what the reaction is to product does not work to discover authentic demands, which is really counterintuitive, especially living in a world where people are saying, go make MVPs to do testing and so on. And, and let me see if I can explain to you why by telling you a story. I want you to imagine there's a, a young woman. She's got a really tough corporate job. It's like dragging on her. She works incredible hours. On a Thursday evening, which is this evening, she's coming home from work and she's walking up the front steps, the front path to her, her house. And she's just, you can just see how tired she is and she's exhausted. And just then the front door to her house bursts open and out of her house runs the cutest little girl you ever saw. And she runs up to her mother and she says, mommy, mommy, I made you a mud pie, mommy, I made you a mud pie. 
Now, it's just mud. It's just dirt and water. It's a mud pie. But the mother says, oh, my gosh, that's the most beautiful mud pie I ever saw. I can't believe you knew I wanted a mud pie. How did you know? Now, in that, se- in that situation, every person is acting completely authentically. The thing is that this little girl would be making a serious error if she thought that there were any other mothers in the neighborhood that wanted a mud pie. And she's been making a big mistake thinking that her mother wants a mud pie tomorrow. The problem is all product is mud pie. That is, other people's reactions to the things you put in front of them. You have a symphony going in your head that explains what it is. They have a symphony going in their head that explains what it is. It's all mud pie. I can tell you in my own experience, one of the startups I started before I knew any of this stuff or I had a way to understand this stuff was a company called Dumbala. It was a product that would save companies on the internet a lot of headaches and a lot of money and fraud. I had, I knew somebody who was the chief information security officer at eBay. These people came to me with this technical stuff and they said, throw in with us and become a founder of the startup. And I said, well, I'm not stupid. I'm going to go check to see whether there's customers. I flew out west and I talked to my friend Howard, who was the chief information security at eBay, and I showed him what we were, technology was. And he said, wow, that would save us $40 million a year in fraud. How much does it cost? And I had no idea. We'd never made one. So I said $150,000, thinking, well, you know, it costs something to make it. And then I have to put salespeople out of the street. I figured 150 and he didn't blink. And I said, to start, and he didn't blink. So I ran back home and started this company and got the intellectual property out of Georgia Tech and hired a CEO and raised money for it. And six months later, went back and they were very excited and never bought. And I can't tell you how many board meetings we had for this company. This company did it fine. It got to 12 million in sales and exited, not where it wanted to go. But eBay never bought this thing. And I'll say, just play it back. I went out there. It really would save them $40 million. They asked me how much it would cost. It would really only cost 150000 and they didn't buy. Okay, what's up with that? It's like, now I would say something else, which is, There is nothing in that interaction that should indicate anything that's around authentic demand. Nothing. It was like I was the little girl in the story, and he was the mother. We were friends. He was interested in doing something with Georgia Tech. It made sense to him. He was so excited that I was showing him something. There's no authentic demand. Saving $40 million at a cost of $150,000 is not an authentic demand. What I wish I had said to him was, tell me, Howard, are there other ways that you could save $40 million? My guess is he would have listed three or four, none of which he was doing. So by making him something that could save him $40 million, we were just doing one more thing that he also wasn't going to do. So what I'm trying to say is, first of all, if you want to know the answer to the question of whether there's authentic demand, you can't do it by showing people product. It's just philosophically ungrounded. It's not a reasonable way to do it. So now you have to do something else. So now what do you do instead? Are you with me so far? You... I'm with you so far. I'm fascinated by the example. I, I'm, I'm rethinking this in kind of a, a sales perspective, right? It's like a salesperson in that situation, the story you just told, would be really excited. We have a clear ROI here. The customer is excited too. That question that you offered is a really good one for us to not let go by too quickly. So how else can you save $40 million? And which one of those things are you taking action on right now? Yes. that. In fact, what I would say is, if you think about the not-not, Really, what makes someone a customer is not buying is not okay. And you have to know in your heart that's what you're looking for as an innovator. You have to know you're looking for a not-not. You're not looking for someone to make you feel good that they might buy. That doesn't do you any good because then you're just like the little girl trying to impress the mother and then you don't learn anything. But what you have, And so if you know in your heart 
that what's meaningful is that not buying is not okay. Give them a chance to not buy. And if they don't buy, guess what? Not buying was not, it was okay. And therefore you didn't have a not, not. So go to them and say, okay, suppose you don't buy. Is that okay? If the answer is it's okay, you may not want to hear that, but that's the right question to ask. So part of what's so interesting about this work, for what it's worth, is how unbelievably difficult it is for human beings to do that. I show people how to do this work and I say, okay, go out and do that. And I, they come back and I say, how did it go? And they said, we were talking, but I couldn't ask. It's really fascinating. There's a, what, the reason we don't see things, the reason we're stuck in our waking dreams is we're not actually able to do this kind of breaching activity. We're, we're unable to do something which seems so weird. Like you, do, you so don't, they so act like they don't want to make you feel bad that you don't ask them questions that make it possible for them to make you feel bad. And part of what is true about deliberate innovation is finding a way to interact with potential customers or persons of interest, I call them, because maybe they're not the customer, somebody else is a customer, right. interacting with them in such a way that you can discern from them what it is about their situation that would make not buying not okay. So a typical question might be, okay, you've told me it would save you $40 million. Are there other ways you could save $40 million? Uh And if so, what's different about this one? Like, why would you buy this one and not those? If you're not buying, if you're not doing those, why would you do this? Asking those kinds of questions. And what you said, by the way, is a good salesman. One of the things I learned running companies myself is you get pretty good at sales. But here's how a lot of companies fail. I would. I might walk in and I might convince them to buy because in this case, when I'm present, this customer might buy from me. But all I did was create a situation in which not buying from me is not okay. Mm. That's a lot different than finding situations in which not buying the product is not okay. And that's another mistake that people typically make is they'll, for example, go to a few customers. The customers will find some relationship with the person. The person will convince themselves that they're going to buy. The customer really will buy. The corporation now thinks that the customer is going to buy, but what happened was the customer wasn't buying the product. The customer was buying something else. And really the work of the innovator is to figure out what is it about the customer situation that makes not buying not okay, Right. that makes it possible for us to build something that our sales channels can sell without our being in the room to make sure that the sale happens. Let me ask you about this not not, the, the not buying is not okay. The a lot of times we think about we need to find a problem that is big enough that is worth solving. And I'm curious how you, just yeah. how do you reflect on that? Yeah, yeah. No, so I had the same thoughts. It's really funny. You know, you read, I've done a lot of startups. I've mm-hmm. been doing this for a long time. And after the fact, when people are buying, you make up all these stories. Like it was a painkiller, not a vitamin. Right. It was a really big problem. But if you start and say, I'm looking for a really big problem, you can't find it. And you say, I'm looking for a painkiller, not a vitamin, asking people what their pain is, you don't find it. So those are what we call these things after the fact that we're just a made up story. There's a lot of pains people have and they just live with them just fine. Pain isn't the important thing. Bigness is not the important thing. What's important is not doing something about it is not okay. That's a whole different framework. It could be small. It could be incredibly tiny. And, but not doing something about it is not okay. And then you give people, here's how I've come to think about this. You want to eventually see your customers so clearly that you see where they're already impelled to go. And you see how they can't get there because there's something restraining them. They can't see it or they can't do something about the restraint. And then here's what your product is. Your product shows up. It reveals to them a way that they can go, that they were already trying to go. 
-huh. And it simply removes the restraint. Uh -huh. And then they just reach for it because that's where they were going anyway. That's what it has to look like. And it doesn't have to be this looking for big, really irrelevant, looking for intense. If those things worked, we would, we would see much more success. What I'm trying to say is the waking dream is you have to find need to, you have to find intensity, you have to find pain. That's what it looks like after the fact. More clearly, you can think much more clearly. Just ask yourself, in this situation, is not reaching for something okay? And if the answer is yes, then you can put it in front of them, and you might be able to convince them in person, but it's not what you're looking for. You're looking for not reaching for it is really not okay, and that's why they're reaching. And then you can find the way to make the thing that they'll actually reach for. Okay. Is that helpful? I'm wondering it if, is. If, this... I'm wondering if it, for you, it connects to some stories of your own. Well, yeah, there's a story I've told before for sure that it connects well to, which is the traditional CEO story that goes and meets with your biggest customer mm -hmm. and discovers a problem that biggest customer has and comes back and tells you to build this thing. And yes. as a product manager of that, that example, we said, well, maybe we should talk to some of our other large customers just to get a better mm -hmm. understanding of this, which I did. And sure enough, all of our other large customers said, yeah, we have that problem too. And then when we dug deeper, every single one of them said, even if you gave this to us for free, we probably wouldn't change what we do today. Yeah, it's, exactly that. And I think exactly of, I that. think of that in terms of that's not a big enough problem, but I'm, I'm still wrapping my hands around this language, right? I, I really do this perspective on, is it something that is not okay for the customer to buy, right? Yeah, yeah. and here's a really interesting question. Okay, well, I would like to follow up with those conversations you had and say, how is it that it's okay not to buy? But how is it? You're getting along? How is it? How are you right. managing? See, one of the things that took a long time for me to get my head around is why are people coming up with all these ideas for what products could be, like the CEO talking to the person or person, you ask a person, what's your biggest pain? And they tell you what their biggest pain is. There's this, there's this thing we miss, which goes, which is really obvious once you see it, it's just hard to remember. Every single person you ever meet is incredibly expert on their own lives. Every single moment of every single day, they're just okay. They're doing what they know how to do. They pick up the phone, they, 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 they call, they link, everything that comes across their desk, they delete it, they don't delete Every single minute of every single day, they're coping with their world just fine already. Uh -huh. Now, if you find someone who was just diagnosed as, with a cancer that can't be cured, okay, in that moment, they can't cope. But every single person you meet and every single job you ever find is in that job already being an expert in their lives. How is it even plausible that you could think that you can show up in their lives and do something for them that actually is meaningful for them, given that they're already unbelievably expert on something that you have no idea about, which is what their life is like? That's why innovation is so difficult. Actually, part of the puzzle is how do you walk into situations in which there is no current consumption, and yet there's an authentic demand? And what you're actually seeing is there's no consumption, which means that there's no behavior towards the thing you're trying to imagine that they would reach for. And yet, were you to show up with a product, they would reach for it. That's right. a lot of what we had to work through. And the answer to that is, people have said this in ways that post hoc make sense. You say, you should know your customers better than they know themselves. But I'm going to tell you what, exactly what that really means. You understand how they're already impelled. You see what they're doing or not doing that's in the way of getting to where they're trying to go. That's how they're stuck. Everybody's stuck. You just They just don't notice it. And then you find out what is it that makes it impossible for them to change the behavior that's causing them to be stuck. That's a restraint. And you simply figure out how to help them change that behavior without triggering some immune reaction, typically. And that's what your product is. And so, what, so with that conceptual framework, 
we've introduced a couple of tools. Yeah, what I want to ask you, Merrick, so I think this has teed up a really good deep thinking about a other way to think about innovation, which is just mm. when we're creating value, it isn't simply that we're creating more value than some competitors are creating. It really is in this context of something customers are already trying to accomplish that this makes it a no-brainer for them to say yes to, that they can't say no to this thing. Yeah, when you say can't say when you say can't say no, it's like saying no is actually not okay for some reason. Yeah. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to do another episode to now get into if we can do a part two together to talk about some of the tools then that enable this now that we understand we need to think a little bit differently. How do we actually discover situations like that? Could we invite you back for that? It would be my pleasure. It's my that, pleasure. That would be great. Let's let's do that. That means we'll wrap this up at this point, and we're going to revisit this very soon. And listeners know we always wrap up with a innovation quote. I asked you to bring us one, and if you could share that and what that means, that would be very helpful. Yeah, so it's actually a quote we start the book with, and it's a quote from a, um, a person named Frederick Beekner. And I'll, I'll, it's not exactly what he said, but I'll say it this way: Here's where uh, innovators are drawn to. And if you're an innovator, this is where I believe all of us are drawn to. We're drawn to that place where our deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And let me say that, let me explain that a little bit. Our deep gladness, if not building it is, is okay, you're not glad. So your product, you feel like it's the product you can't not build. If you build it and they don't care about it, that ain't okay either. That's their deep hunger. The place that you're drawn to is where your deep gladness, that is the thing that you're not okay to not build, meets the thing that they're not okay for you to not build. That's how the not-nots work. And I believe that's what we're all trying to do is we're trying to get to a place where we care that about what we make and other people care that we care about what we make. And if you don't have that, I think that you're not being, feeling successful as an innovator. As a younger engineer, I just liked making things. Yes. I didn't particularly mm -hmm. care if people valued it or used it or not. I just like making things. Isn't that um, interesting? That it's fun, right? Yeah. And we're um, teaching all of our students. That I work at an engineering institution. I worked at Berkeley mm -hmm. and Carnegie Mellison. This is we teach our students how to, we tell them the end result and they figure out how to make it. But then the problem with that is people don't care that they made, that it was made. Yeah. Does anyone actually care? I like the quote. This has been very thought provoking. We're going to have you back real soon to do a part two so we can dive into some tools on this. And, and obviously people are going to get more details in your book now. Tell us where the, is a good place to find out about your book or any other resources. Go to Amazon, The Heart of Innovation. Yeah, I think it's meant to be an easy read, take you one or two sessions. It's all stories. The forward is by Arvind uh, Krishna, who's the CEO of IBM. And I hope you enjoy it. That's fantastic. Okay. And we'll make sure we have the links in the show notes for that. Yes. And if, it ha if it's not obvious, um, it's not okay for me to not be helping people innovate. So if you want to reach out to me independently, I'm more than happy. I'm at, I'm at Georgia Tech. You can find my email address in many different ways. Okay. And is LinkedIn a good place as well to find out more LinkedIn about LinkedIn is you? fine. I'm on LinkedIn also. Yeah. Fantastic. Chad, you're fantastic. I, thank you. I spoke you're too much guy. today, I think, but I, it's been a great uh, thank discussion. you for the opportunity. Absolutely. And I'm looking forward to part two. Merrick, thank you for being with us. My pleasure, Chad. And listeners, one more time, if you want to find the written show notes of everything we discussed and that one-page action guide, simply go to productmasterynow.com slash 468. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. 
Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.